please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Kathleen Gothard. Can you hear me? Thank you for that kind introduction. I'm very grateful and thankful to the National Academy and to UCI for inviting me for this event tonight. I'm happy to be here to talk about something that is very close to my heart, a subject that has the word magic in it, because I really believe that we are at the beginning of a road of discovery, and what seems magical today, it will stay magical tomorrow, but it will be understood. And I have a lot of good news to tell you tonight about how touch works and how touch is getting to be understood by neuroscientists. Our laboratory just joined this effort of trying to understand the neuroscience of touch. But what we bring to the table is a different perspective. We're looking at touch through the lens of emotion and social behavior. And although I have a lot of good news, I would like to start on a dark note. I just want to have it black for a minute for, so that you look at me. <laughs> Try to think about where you were in 1986, those of you who've been around. What was happening in the world? What made you happy or unhappy at that time? I was in Romania, a medical student in Bucharest, in the time of a terrible dictatorship of a communist dictator whose name I don't want to put up and I don't want to pronounce. I was a medical student and I did my pediatric rotations in a Romanian orphanage. Now I heard from the room. Some of you know the terrible association with Romanian orphanages. Some of you are too young to know. But I have to tell you that if there is something terrible that I don't want to put a picture up here of, then that is it, the plight of those orphans. And it was never washed out of my memory. The word inhumane doesn't even start to describe the plight of these children. When the dictatorship fell and the Iron Curtain fell, People like you from a civilized world came in, rushed in, and adopted 14 to 20,000 orphans from these orphanages. These are now, these kids are now in their 20s, and most of them are handicapped. Most of them were not able, some of them were, but most of them were not able to overcome the damage that was done to their developing brain by deprivation. And while we thought at that time that the deprivation was food and vitamins and warmth and clothing, we now know that it was touch, cuddling, loving, holding. That's what these children missed. And because we didn't have that, the part of their brain that later in life is responsible for establishing trusting, lasting bonds did not develop normally. And there's no catching up for that. So this is where I'm coming from to touch. And now we can put the slides back and advance to a story that is actually an American story. We're going to the year 1928 and James Watson, who was the founder of the movement of behaviorist psychology in the US, and he wrote this book uh, entitled Psychological Care of the, Inf of the uh, Infant and Child. And there was a chapter that says, too much mother love. And then he describes here something that I have highlighted here for you. The children can be kissed at most at their forehead when you, when you, when you say goodnight. Shake, shake hands with them in the morning. Give them a pat on the head if they have made an extraordinarily good job of a difficult task. Try it out. In a week's time, you will find how easy it is to be perfectly objective with your child and at the same time kindly. You will be utterly ashamed of the mawkish, sentimental way you have been handling it. This is the advice that American women got in, this, in the 30s 
from the American well-intentioned but completely misguided psychologist. The reason why we don't have a lot of people running around with the deficits that the Romanian orphans run around, because mothers didn't do it. They picked up their children and they cuddled them and they loved them and kissed them to death. Not only on the forehead, and they didn't shake their heads. They picked them up and cuddled and cuddled them when they were good. So there is a huge historic deep divide between behavioral psychology and between affective neuroscience. The behavioral psychologists have no room in their system for the world love affect. Emotions are just bodily state elicited by that, some stimulus. Where affective neuroscience, not only that embraces these words, but is opened to find the basis of it, the actual neurobiological basis of it. And this is where I came into play, because when I came to the US and I got my PhD, I studied the hippocampus and memory. And then for your postdoc, you have an opportunity to choose. What do you want to study for the rest of your life? Emotion and affect is what I wanted to study for the rest of my life. And so here's another story about emotion and affect, which also has an interesting history. This is called kangaroo care. When a baby is stripped, it has a diaper on it, and it's put to the mother's chest for hours in a row. And this is standard care in for premature babies in our best hospitals. You know where it comes from? It comes from a poor hospital in Bogota, Colombia. In this hospital, the, the, the prematurely born babies had a death rate of about 70%. And the American doctors went down there and trying to help, and they realized that without the technology and the incubators and the thermostats and all the technology that they had, they couldn't keep the babies alive. And they thought it was because they couldn't keep them warm. So they resorted to the body heat of the mother or the grandmother or the father, and they stripped the baby naked, put it on the chest of the mother, covered it with a blanket for hours in a row because they wanted the baby to stay warm. And then guess what happened? Not only that the baby thrived and the death rate was reduced, but they had better immunity. They didn't require antibiotics for infections. They ate better, they slept better, they cried less. Everything was radically improved just because of those hours and hours of skin contact. We know now that this is the best that the baby can get, that the baby's brain is almost needing it, almost wanting it. Without this, it doesn't develop normally. And this is what kangaroo mother care is. This is the best of the hospitals throughout this world. That's what they do. This is how science works. There are some observations, and there's some necessity, and some poverty, and magic comes out of it. So what is, what is, what is the benefit? Why is huddling and cuddling and loving so beneficial? It's actually extraordinary. You don't have to be young and be in this reproductive drive to touch. It can happen at other, oops, where's my, uh, yeah, at other times in life. You don't even have to be another human being. It actually can be a terrible predator with the right relationship. A hug is warm and good. And this is my niece at Christmas in Hungary taking a nap with the dog. Why is it so good? What's the benefit? So this is the things that we know. When you are surrounded by arms around you, you feel secure, you feel protected, you are cocooned. That sense of security that is so important for a child is important for us grown-ups too. We have a lot of things to worry about. If you're not, if you feel secure, you're relaxed. If you're relaxed, your muscles let go of the tension, you, your heart rate goes down, your breathing becomes deeper, you're paying more attention to things that are happening around you. You're not reactive, but proactive, because you have less anxiety. Anxiety is actually the worst poison of our mental life. 
most of the time we're not in the present. Most of our time, our mind runs back and forth between the past and the future, barely stopping at the present moment. We run ahead in time and worry about the things that will happen or may not happen the way we want them. And then we run back in, pa in the past to think about things that happened the way we didn't want them and we cannot correct them. And that kind of mental state of worrying about the future and fretting about the past is that sleepless state of not being able to go to sleep. That's when you go to bed, you thought sleep is going to come, but your brain goes a million miles about worrying about things. You're not in the present. But when you're in a hug, when you're cuddling, you have to be in the present. You are in the present because your body responds exactly the way it responds when you're in, in, in the present because of a meditation or a yoga practice. How do we know that? We know that because your body goes, your heart goes into a state called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. This is a slight deviation of the heart from a constant rhythm. And it goes like this. When we inhale, the heart accelerates a little bit. And when we exhale, the heart slows down a little bit. When this happens, the breathing and the heart rate are in harmony. They talk to each other. They influence each other through a very big nerve in our body called the vagus nerve that coordinates the function of all our internal organs. And when this vagal nerve is the dominating activity in our internal organs, in our chest and in our abdomen, we are in a resting, peaceful, contented state of mind. When the other part of the autonomic nervous system, autonomic means it does its thing without you wanting or knowing about it. When that sympathetic nervous system dominates, we are agitated, we are ready to fight or flee or be aggressive or be defensive. So when you are in this tone of calm and you have respiratory sinus arrhythmia, this is a very important factor of heart health. I remember when we did our emergency training, and later on as a, as a neurosurgery trainee, I have seen many polytraumatized patients. Didn't see many heart attack patients, but clearly I saw a lot of chest trauma from car accidents and motorcycle accidents and so. And there was this rule of thumb in the emergency room that when you have somebody with a major heart attack or a major cardiac emergency. If they have respiratory sinus arrhythmia, that little arrhythmia, the little acceleration and deceleration of the heart with the breathing, they're more likely to, to survive the night than if they don't have it. It's kind of, you kind of know. Patient comes in with a big myocardial infarction. They don't have respiratory sinus arrhythmia. There's a very good chance that they have a fatal arrhythmia that will kill them before the morning. So it's an unbelievably important state of the heart, this respiratory sinus arrhythmia, and it can be elicited by cuddling and hugging. Then we'll go to deeper breathing. Well, I don't think I need to say anything here. There's 6,000 years of human practice of yoga and other kind of respiratory exercise. We know that it's beneficial. We know that deep breathing changes the way your mind responds to external stimuli. And when all of these are said and done, there's your immune system. This is the little brain that circulates through our blood vessels and they're in our tissues and they're defending us from the constant onslaught of chemicals and bacteria and viruses. Some are good, some are bad. So here, look at this list of bodily functions that are life critical for life that can be influenced by cuddling and an affective touch. But of course, it's not satisfying because it's just reporting the facts. As a scientist, you want to know why, how. So here's why. There's a hormone in our body that it's called oxytocin. And everybody knows about this hormone from the birthing room because it it induces uterine contractions during childbirth. But recently, we have started to see how important oxytocin in, 
is for behaviors that are outside of reproduction and, and childbirth and sex and lactation. Oxytocin is released in the brain during positive, opened, affect, positive affective states and, and physical interactions. Again, it doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be romantic. It can be between a human and an animal. So for example, if you pet your dog in a very loving way for about 10, 15 minutes, in your brain, there will be an amount of oxytocin released that is equivalent to the amount of oxytocin released in the brain of a lactating mother. That feeling of love and care and attachment, it's coming through this hormone. And you know what's the best part of it? The dog experiences an increased oxytocin too. So oxytocin is this, we actually, I have a graduate student in my lab who's looking at the effect of oxytocin in adult male monkeys. And we have a couple publications and more coming showing that adult male monkeys, when they inhale oxytocin through their nose, they become more interested, more tuning into others, more permissive, more interested in engaging in social interactions with other unknown monkeys. When typically a male adult, when it encounters an unknown monkey, aggression and cockiness is the default behavior. Another hormone, or actually a neuromodulator rather than hormone, are endorphins. Endorphins are the morphines that the brain produces. It's a, it's a calming, relaxing, but in the same time sort of energizing uh, compound that is released both in the brain, but very interestingly, it's released by the skin, the skin that is touched and caressed right there on that spot this incredibly powerful substance. This is the substance that gives people that good feeling after they exercise, that sense of contentness. This is the reason why people become hooked on painkillers that are derivative of opioids, because it's an, it's a, it binds to the opioid receptors that gives you the sense of well-being. Well, that substance can be produced by your skin if it's touched in a loving and caressing way. The next idea is, okay, how do we quantify the pleasantness of touch? You look at this boy with his cat, and you can tell that both of them are having a good time. But science doesn't work like this. We want to know why, how, what's happening, which is the part, which is the component of this interaction of the touch that makes this pleasant. And it's a difficult answer to, to pursue. So here is an example of how it was pursued by a group of scientists. This is just, just to show you that here is boy and cat. Nobody has any doubt that this is pleasant. Now, if you want to prove that in the laboratory, all these people from a couple of continents, some of them are Australian, some of them are American, some of them are European, they build this apparatus. And what you see here is a human being seated in a chair next to a robot. And the robot has this rotating arm that can be computer programmed with a brush. And the brush can be replaced for different rigidity of the bristles. And it can be programmed to do different kind of speeds and sweeps. And then the human being who gets brushed by this robot has a little push button thing that's going to report this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. So you think, why on earth? This probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And collaboration across the continent. Why do you need to do this stupid contraption when it's so obvious? Well, I tell you why. Because they did this, they discovered that there are fibers in your skin, in our skin, in the skin of the forearm right there, that are uniquely tuned to pleasurable touch. And that pleasurable touch has to meet the following criteria. 
it has to be light touch with a particular pressure that you can express in millinewtons per square millimeters. It has to be a body temperature. And the sweep speed has to be between 5 and 10 centimeters per second. This, in other words, is caressing. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, we had no idea that these fibers existed. I think it's worth a couple hundred thousand dollars and the work of a couple scientists. We discovered that these things exist. So let's take a look at the skin. Here's a little square of the skin with the epidermis, the part that we see with the hair sticking out, and then the dermis, which is deeper, the hair follicles, blood vessels, fat, whatever you have here, uh, sweat glands. And in between all this crowding of different components, there are receptors, touch receptors, pressure receptors, heat receptors, pain receptors. So these receptors are little organelles, little, it's a little apparatus that is beautifully tuned to transform one form of energy into different form of energy. For example, it transforms pressure of a couple millinewtons per millimeter square into a set of electrical impulses that are then picked up by the nerves in our skin and carried to our brain, and our brain decodes it and say, this is the pressure that I feel on the skin, or temperature. So these are very finely tuned little apparatus that live in our skin that are transforming every input, every little millimeter square of your skin has them, and transforms these inputs and sends them to the brain. So until that funny experiment with the robot and the brush was done, this is what we thought about the classification of these receptors. We knew that there are pressure-sensitive receptors, and these are the names of the scientists who discovered them. Pacini and Ruffini are not pastas. They are different receptors that live in the skin, and they sense different amount of pressure. And then we also know that there were receptors that responded to fine touch. These are receptors that respond to very, very slight pressures, the way, the way you would feel a feather touching your skin. By the way, I remember about this feather. Somebody told me once, you know, a feather is sexy. A whole chicken is pornography. <laughs> There are these other kinds of Merkel, uh, of receptors called the Merkel discs, and they are sensing vibration. So if you think about your skin, where your fingerprints are, those are ridges, right? So imagine now that you magnify your skin and uh, the fingertips, and you see these ridges. And now imagine that you magnify the surface of your blue jeans or of a piece of silk or of a, of, of a, of a, of a um, I don't know, another kind of fabric. Tell me a different kind of fabric. Yes, flannel, right? So imagine that you're, you're pulling your finger, your fingertip with those ridges across the ridges of the fabric. So these little guys are very, very fast in turning on and off. And that's how, through that little vibration that happens when you move your finger across the fabric of different texture, that's how we detect, this is how we detect texture. Without these little guys, with these little discs, we would never know. We would no, we'd go shopping visually, and we would not go shopping by touching the clothes on the rack. I don't know about you guys, but I, I see women, how they shop, and I shop like this. I just go like this. Oh, that feels good. That, I'm going to get that. That feels good. And then here is something that I, I like very much, this kind of a root hair plexus. Funny, I don't know who discovered this. Where is your name? Must have been a German. Because this, these are little nerve terminals at the root of each hair. And they are reporting the bending of the hair. And it's so interesting because the bending of the hair can happen through an object that, that actually presses on the hair. But it can also be just by the air jet, by the wind, by blowing on it. And these are so clever 
by, by they know how long the hair is, how long it sticks out, how much force there must have been applied to that hair for bend its tip or its root, and they know in which, in which way all of the hairs bend so they can tell that air is blowing from this direction or that direction. So incredible little organelles. And then these are the bad guys. These, there's no organelles. These are free nerve endings. There are no specialization. These guys, when they're active, we feel pain and we feel hot and cold, and typically not just a regular hot and cold, that kind of hot and cold that gives you pain. That gives you, it's too, you, 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 I don't know whether you know how that feeling is when you put your hand under a faucet that has ice cold water, and you know that it's cold, but it's painful too. So is when, when the hot is too warm. So this is what we thought. We thought that there are these three types of receptors. They all have these little nerve uh, branches, they come into a bigger branch of a nerve, that nerves take that information from the area of the skin, wherever these guys live, up to the brain, the brain makes sense of it, this is how we interact with the objects in our environment. But after that experiment, we know that these free nerve endings, there's a kind of these free nerve endings that transmit pleasure because of the robot and the brush experiment. We know that there are these specialized C fibers in the skin that respond to pleasure, and they're there in rats, they're there in monkeys, they're there in us. Pleasure is an extremely difficult concept for scientists, partly because if we can't quantify it, we don't know what it is. Words are source of trouble most of the time. We can have areas of science where uh, we study words and we see that they mean different things to different people. It's, it's amazing that given how different we are, that actually we understand each other at all, especially in terms of emotion and social communication. And when it comes about pleasure, I pull this image from Google. And I put in the keyword, facial expression of pleasure. Guess what I got? Very sexually explicit images that are not appropriate for all audiences. <laughs> we, have, we have a cultural bias of thinking about pleasure, mostly in terms of biological needs, food, drink, shelter, sexual behavior, whatever. There's more to pleasure, and, and it doesn't have to be so focused on, on, on reproductive behavior and on pair bonding and on, on, on maternal behavior. There are all kinds of other pleasures. In fact, we are one of the few species that we can experience the pleasure of music, or we can experience the pleasure of silence that have no biological value. So pleasure is difficult for scientists, but it's very important to tackle because pleasure is a state in which those good things happen to your body and to your mind. And it can be brought about by more than sex. So how do we actually deal with what is tactile function, uh, touch function that is a way of knowing the world around you and the objects around you, and the tactile or touch function that is dealing with pleasure. So there's a very good way of separating them. Here is the, oops, here is the part of the brain that where all these cutaneous receptors send their signals. All those little corpuscles in the skin, all the little organelles that you saw in the skin, they eventually send their signals here. This is called the somatosensory cortex. It's a sliver of the brain right here in the middle. If you cut the brain, and if you look at this through this section, you see that this blue area, it's called the cortex, or the upper part of the brain. This is where the actually brain cells live. All this white area is just the wiring. 
So in this area, in this little sliver of the brain, there is a map of the surface of the body. And you can see that this map is not proportional with the different sizes of the different body parts. This is called the homunculus, or the little man in the brain. So it's not even coherent, because there's a head there, and then there's another head here, and then there's a tongue, not in the mouth, so it's not, and the genitals below the toe. It's all co completely sort of non-necessarily topographical and organized. But what you see here is the different parts of the body are larger. And why are they larger? Because this little map on your brain is not a correct map of the body surface, but it's a map of the density and the sensitivity of the receptors in a particular area. So where are the more touch receptors? On our face, and on our lips, and on our tongue, and on our fingertips. So if you were to reconstruct and make a little man based on how much brain area the different body parts would occupy based on how much, how many receptors they have, this is how the little man would look. It had a huge face, a huge mouth with big lips and tongue, and huge hands. And I'm not telling you something. There's another part of the body that has a lot of dense receptors for find and for different types of touch and different types of pressures. And I didn't think that I had to put it in this talk because it's been all over the media since last Friday. <laughs> so you know anyway that neuroscience of touch made it into the presidential election. But if, if, if that little homunculus had that body organ, it would compare to the size of the hands. And again, I don't want to go genital hands. I, I'd rather not go there. So this is what's happening with the, the mapping of the body surface of those receptors that are involved in us interacting with objects, knowing what they are, detecting their size, their shape, their texture, their temperature. But what about emotion? Where is emotion here? Where is affective touch? Well, affective touch takes a different path. It goes to a different place in the brain. It goes to two places that are absolutely my favorite places, but out of my two favorites, between the insula and the amygdala, the amygdala is my favorite, just because I know it better, because I spent the last 16 years of my life studying it. It's an absolutely fascinating structure of the brain. It appeared in evolution around rep the reptiles. And with every species, it acquired new features. It serves the specific needs of that species. It changes shape, it changes the cells, it changes the chemicals. It stays the amygdala because it organizes our life, it organizes our emotion, and it's the center where all emotions are coming from, and it's also the center where all the emotions of others are understood. So if you're a rat, your amygdala is gonna be all about fear because rodents are the lunch meat of nature. But if you're a primate, your emotions are not going to come from fear of predators or being eaten. Your emotions are going to come from fear of not being socially accepted and loved. And so the amygdala of a primate, it's actually a, a, a center of our social brain. Without an amygdala, you don't understand the facial expression of others. Without the amygdala, you don't understand the prosody of their language. Without an amygdala, you cannot learn to predict certain behaviors based on what you're doing. The amygdala is also the most interconnected structure of the brain. I think about it the way I think about the flight, the incoming and outgoing flights from different hubs. This is Delta Airlines. I'm not paid by them. I just pulled this image off the web. So you can think about the amygdala as Atlanta, or Salt Lake City or Minneapolis that has an enormous amount of incoming flights and outgoing flights. And what does it mean? What it means is that if something happens in Atlanta and your flight cannot land, 
there's a backlog of flights coming in, and if you, something happens in Atlanta and your flight cannot leave, then, then that other flight cannot go. So there's a whole complete spreading of information if you're disturbing or changing the function of a hub. But there's no spreading of information if some flights are going to be delayed in El Paso City. So the amygdala is like a hub. It is actually the most interconnected structure in the brain. Whatever, whatever happens in the amygdala will have a consequence both upstream and downstream because the amygdala is connected to all other parts of the brain down, downstream and upstream, meaning something that has to do with the information coming into the brain and the way we make sense of it, and downstream, something that happens after we have made sense of the incoming information. This is why emotions are all pervasive. You cannot be just fearful with the little part of your brain. You can't even be fearful without involving your entire body. So the amygdala is a very powerful structure because it can completely hijack the entire function of the brain depending on what your emotional state is. We've been looking at the amygdala of monkeys. And the neurons that the cells that, that comprise the amygdala of monkeys are so unbelievably beautiful because they respond to certain individuals. They cue into an other face. They respond to certain facial expressions. They respond to eye contact. We found in the amygdala this ancient structure, brain cells that are uniquely tuned to eye contact. How powerful of a social signal that is. And how interesting that eye contact activates these cells, these specially tuned cells in the amygdala, this ancient structure that holds the key to our emotional life, and not some of these newly evolved recent pieces of brain that gives us intelligence, planning, computer programming, language, what have you. So the amygdala is incredibly powerful. And the way we study it is this is, the, this is the amygdala of the monkey. This is where it is. It's right here above your ear. I'm collaborating with uh, some colleagues in uh, Los Angeles at Cedar sinai Hospital. And they, they put electrodes in the amygdala of patients who await surgery for epilepsy. And in order to figure out where the epileptic focus is, they put these electrodes. And then these electrodes have been modified a little bit by engineers to be able to signal the activity of single neurons. And this is what happens. We do this in monkeys. They do it in humans. So you take out a cell. And then this cell, when it meets its stimulus, is going to send these little packets, these little e electrical impulses. These are little, little sounds, just like static electricity, like a little sound that every time a bit of information is signaled by a neuron of the amygdala, you're going to hear this. We can put these little electrical impulses in the computer to analyze them, but we can also put them in an audio monitor. And it sounds like static, but I have to tell you, for me, it's one of the most beautiful music that you can hear. You sit in a darkened room with an electrode in the amygdala. The animal is watching a movie or is interacting with another animal or just goes to sleep and relaxes or is touched. And you hear how these neurons sing and tell you what's happening. And I would like to show you one of these. So the next slide shows the monkey cutie sitting in a lab and it's blindfolded because we didn't want him to we didn't want these brain cells in the amygdala to respond to the visual stimulus of how we're touching him. And I would like uh, the man in the booth to, to play this video. So before you play it, what you're going to see is somebody touching the monkey, and you will hear the, uh, the activity of this single brain cell in the amygdala.
Peter, do you have any doubt that the cell in the amygdala responds to touch? This was a, a really heartwarming discovery because I've been working in this brain structure and I've been working in emotion and we always worked in the visual domain. And when we found this cell, I knew I can go to touch. I knew now a whole new chapter is opening. And it's such a coincidence that I'm here talking about this today. This week will appear our first report. The first report ever that the amygdala contains cells, brain cells that respond to touch. It's such an honor. It's such a, such a privilege. So why it's so important to study touch in monkeys? Because this is the way they express positive affect. This is what they know to say, I like you, I care about you, I want to be your friend. And I would like to show you a video that shows how they do it. Would you please play it? So these are a couple of macaques on the island of Cayo Santiago in the afternoon. They hang out and they groom each other. And grooming initially evolved as a way of removing parasites and debris from the fur of your friends. But it turns out that if we quantify, again, we're scientists, we measure things. If we quantify the amount of time the monkeys spend grooming each other, it way exceeds the hygienic needs of cleaning each other's fur. It's really not just for the hygiene. It's for that bonding, touching, caring, positive interaction. And we know that it is really important even in their sort of social lives. Because if one, because if this, oops, I'm sorry. Uh, if this monkey is, or this monkey is attacked by another monkey, the likelihood of this monkey to come to his or her help is directly proportional to the amount of grooming that she received from him. So we know that this is a way they, they express their, their positive affective state. And they don't even have to have another monkey. If they want to show that they care, they're going to groom whoever has some hair or fur, and they, they're going to go for it. So, so we know this behavior. And I have to tell you, it's an unbelievable privilege to be groomed by a monkey. You know that the monkey wants something for you. At best case, he wants your friendship. At worst case, just wants to prune from your, wants to prune from your pocket. But it's funny because it's not necessarily pleasant because they really pluck the hairs. And if you have a little pigmentation or something, a little pimple or something on your skin, they go at it. And they have sharp little fingernails. So, you know, it's, 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 it's their, but it's their way. So we're very interested in this grooming behavior. And I wanted to know whether we can turn it around. Can we groom a monkey in a way in which the monkey will find it pleasant? So I would like you to watch these two videos of my technician Priska grooming the monkey mittens. This doesn't seem to have a miserable time. And then the next one, please, without the audio. It's just static in the audio. So remember, these are wild animals. They have canines yay big. And everybody who works with monkeys is telling you, keep your fingers away from their mouths. This is not happening in most of the laboratories. It's really wonderful to see that we can establish this rapport with these animals. And we can, we can deliver to them something that they understand as pleasant. But we still want to quantify it a little further. So this is what we did. We built a glove that has some sensors in the fingertips. And the electricity from the sensors goes to the computer. And the computer will register the timing and the pressure and the pinching forces that you do with this glove. And we're going to use this for social grooming. And we're going to ask the monkey whether this is pleasant, what we're thinking that this is going to be pleasant. And then we took an electrodynamic mini shaker 
that produces vibration. And here we put a force transducer, and in this vibratory probe, we can dial in the frequency, the amplitude, and we can measure through this force transducer the contact forces between this vibratory probe. And we thought that this would be a neutral stimulus. And we were trying to get the monkey to prefer one or the other, and also compare it to a situation where he chooses not to be touched with either the vibratory probe or with the grooming glove. And we have set up this experiment in the following way. We gave the monkey a pair of these stimuli, here, for example, the vibratory probe and the glove, and he could touch these images on a, on a touch screen that looks like your iPad or your cell phone, and he could touch it and say, I prefer this. I prefer this to this. So he preferred the vibratory, in this particular case, to the touch. And we also tested whether he preferred no touch to the vibratory stimulus and grooming to no touch. And I'm very happy to report that preliminary data that is only in one animal, and this is why I didn't put the graph up, because I don't want to be responsible for setting, saying something that may not turn out later on. But it looks like this task can stand as a proxy for the pleasantness or desirability or the unpleasantness and, and, and undesirability of a particular stimulus. So now we have a behavior through which the monkeys can show us, yes, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this, in terms of the, of, of, of the tactile domain. So what are we going to do? What are we going to find? What are we expecting to find? Why do we do this? There are going to be some findings at the molecular level. I have already showed you that we know that touch releases endorphins in the skin. I have showed you that there's oxytocin release in the brain during touch. And we have some other molecules that we suspect, but we don't know whether they're going to be involved in this or not. A lot of things that happen in the skin and then some other things that happen in the brain. But there's also a whole lot of molecules that we don't even know that they exist. This is the fun thing about science. You can plan your experiments, but you cannot plan your results. We will discover something. We will find molecules. We will be able to bottle them, give them to people who need touch, who need the benefit of touch. And then we're looking at cells. And I have shown you that cells are in the amygdala are, are tuned to touch. But how are they tuned to pleasant and unpleasant touch? What does it make pleasant and unpleasant in a social situation? We know that the same touch coming from one person is pleasant and coming from another person is unpleasant. We also know that the same touch from the same person is pleasant or unpleasant if it's delivered in a different kind of interactions. So there's a lot to take into the social domain and to do the interaction between individuals at, at the cellular level. And then, of course, there are the brain circuits. If this happens in the amygdala, if the amygdala is the part of the brain that extracts the valence, the, the, the positive or negative uh, dimension of touch, and the social dimension of touch, then because of its in enormous interconnectivity with the brain, that is going to spread throughout and is going to influence things like learning, memory, social interactions, decision making. So there's lots and lots of things that we expect from this science. And who is going to benefit? Everybody. There's not enough room on this slide for me to put up the possibilities that occur to me on those evenings when I sit in my bed anxious, thinking about the future and worrying about it, and not being able to go to sleep thinking, how is this going to turn out? The children whose brain are not developing unless they receive this touch tell us that there is an important ingredient that touch is modifying brain circuits. How about using touch to modify brain circuits that have taken the wrong path for whatever reason, genetic or otherwise? How about using touch in teaching later in life? We don't have to worry about teenagers, adolescents, and young adults to 
get the amount of touch they need. They have the drive to do that. But I tell you what, after the age of 60, with every year, you get less and less touched. And you need it. You need it just as much as children need it. There's less and less touch received by the elderly. And all those benefits that I showed you are not there. They can hire a massage. They have a cat or a dog. But social, social touch is diminishing. So in closing, I have chosen two areas of science where I believe touch will be enormously important. One has to do with the beautiful, extraordinary advance in making artificial prosthetic limbs for amputees. This is the apogee. This is truly a conquered territory of neuroscience and engineering. People with these artificial limbs can interact with their environment. They can feed themselves. They can groom themselves. They can interact with objects. They can be self-sufficient. It's more important for them than walking. If you ask them, OK, what do you think should be the next thing that we should do to improve this further? All of them say, I want to feel with it. I want touch. I want to sense with it. The other thing that harks back to my previous life is the role of touch in medical care. We have technologized medicine to the point that that beautiful, intimate ritual between doctor and patient and nurse and patient is gone. We're not touching the patient anymore. We're putting the stethoscope through the clothing. We rarely do an exam. We do a CAT scan and an MRI and laboratory test. We're not examining the patient. That intimate, trusting relationship that was mediated throughout centuries by touch is gone. And I think it should come back. I think touch, like exercise, is medicine. It's cheap, always available. It can be bottled, personalized, depending on how our relationships are with others. But unlike the medicine that you take as a pill that will change your brain, touch changes two brains. It changes the brain of the receiver in a state of gratitude and relaxation. But it changes the brain of the giver. Because what is more noble than being caring and compassionate and understanding and loving to each other? And talking about caring and compassion, I would like to show you the team of the people <laughs> who stand behind this talk. I am just delivering the news. They have done the work. These are the people in my lab. Here's the monkey whisperer who grooms them and touches them and loves them and cares for them, Priska Zimmerman. A postdoc who actually did his PhD with us, and now he returned for a short period of time before he goes to work with humans. My collaborator and husband who has built a glove and, and taught me about the tactile sensation. Two graduate students, Jeremiah and Philip a mathematician, and a student who is between uh, college and graduate school. Our work has been funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, by the National Science Foundation, and by a California-based uh, generous research foundation that requested to be anonymous. Thank you for your attention.